Good morning. Let us stand together. Hear from God's word. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. His work is majestic. We've seen it in creation. We feel it in redemption. We know it in salvation through Jesus. And our work here today is to rejoice in his work. So may these songs fill our hearts with joy. And let us clap together. Let us rejoice together in our hearts.
Joyce, it's a joy to be with you today. You can be seated. Several of our songs, uh, ones we'll sing in a few minutes, are going to be time-related, meaning we'll look at the past, what God has done, and we'll look into the future, uh, what God will do. So keep that in mind. We'll see that as well in a few verses from the book of James, chapter 4, that I'll read in just a minute. If you're visiting Desert Springs Church, whether here in the worship center or online, we're so glad you could spend this time with us. Maybe more glad you could spend this time uh, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, listening to and responding to singing and the scriptures. If you are visiting, we'd love to start a dialogue with you. And maybe one way, perhaps the best way that you could do that is to reach out to us through email. And you can email info at dscabq.com. We'd love again to start a dialogue with you. Well, this morning, later for our teaching time, we've got Nathan Sherman with us. Uh, he's the teaching pastor at Christ Church in downtown Albuquerque. He used to be on staff. He and his family were here with us at Desert Springs Church. So we look forward greatly to letting Nathan lead us into the scriptures in a little bit. Uh, listen now as I read James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Please bow your heads, pray with me for our service. Father, we ask that you would use this service, your words in the Bible, songs based on those words, that you would use modern tools such as a streamed or recorded service or website or email. May you use these earthly connections so people will see Jesus, his person, his words, his death, his resurrection, the hope of his coming again. And Father, as we sometimes sing in this very room, we confess our thoughts have strayed, minds distracted and dismayed. On the sun, fixed now, each thought. Help us worship as we ought. Father, may your spirit draw, convict, give life, and fill. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and continue in prayer through song. Let this song be our prayer to a God who holds the past, the present, and the future in his good hands. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure 
Spirit. 
say so. All the redeemed washed by his blood. Come and rejoice in his great Let's continue our praise in our prayers now. So will you pray with me? Who is like you, O Lord? Father, we pause now in this place to extol your great name in this assembly, and we honor and acclaim you here in this gathering this morning. Lord, we're drawn together today to sing your praises, to pray your praises, to hear your word proclaimed to us boldly. Your majesty exalted, your greatness affirmed, and your renown echoed. Our hearts are full and our lips are eager and ready. O Lord, that our words and our thoughts here this morning would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Kingship, Lord, belongs to you alone, and majesty and splendor are yours alone. You rule over the nations. You govern all of creation. Lord, you're in the heavens and you do all that you please. Before you now, Lord, your church acknowledges your worthiness. We confess that you alone are deserving of our affections and of our devotion and of our worship. Lord, you are holy. You sit enthroned on the praises of your people. Who is like you, O Lord? Father, you are, you are our shield, our refuge, our shelter, our stronghold, our fortress, our strength, our help, our rock, our deliverer, our salvation, our very present help in time of trouble. And in you and you alone, Lord, we delight. 
You're the source of and the rightful recipient of all our devotion and our affections. Lord, there is no one else deserving. There is no one else praiseworthy. There is no one else that merits our adoration like you. Father, we gather together today to publicly exclaim, we have beheld your works and we will not forget them. We will recount your deeds. We give honor and glory and praise for we exclaim with the psalmist, you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, with anxious hearts and unsettled minds, perhaps, we come before you today in humble adoration, only able to offer up a small portion of what is due your great name. We bring to you, Lord, today a sacrifice of praise. There's no one else worthy, no one else more deserving of our praise. Lord, what are we that you are mindful of us? We are poor and we are needy. We are desperate, but Lord, you take thought of us. We will sing to you, Lord, because you have dealt bountifully with us. We are grateful, Lord, that you have remembered us in our low estate, that you have not despised or abhorred our affliction, that you have not hidden your face from us, but you have heard us when we have cried to you. You've heard our pleas for mercy and you have rescued us from the pit. You have delivered our souls from death. You have looked on us through the perfection of your son who gave himself as a sacrifice for us that we might be brought closer to you. We gather too to give him, your son, Jesus, honor and praise and glory for he is your image, the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of your fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, you have brought peace to us by your Son. Lord, who is like you? Our King, we gather today to give you thanks for your good and because of your steadfast love. We give you thanks today because of your great and unfailing love with which you have loved us that we've been objects of your abundant mercy, that our transgressions have been blotted out, that we've been cleansed, we're clean, all because of Jesus, in whom and for whom we gather today. Lord, our souls thirst for you, our flesh faints for you. Would you fill us here this morning? Who is like you, O Lord? Might we confess with the prophet Jeremiah, there is none like you. May all the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen? Amen. Let us stand and continue praise and consider our great God.
that, say amen. You can be seated. Good morning, Desert Springs. Uh, it's so good to be here with, well, half of you uh, under these strange and undesirable times. Uh, Christ Church is in the same boat as you, uh, humming while masking, and it's not desirable. But it is desirable for me to be here with you. If I've never met you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors of Christ Church. I was the youth minister slash youth pastor then from 2012 to 2016. Uh, though it sounds like uh, you've got like a version 2.0 or version 5.0 or 6.0 of youth minister and Caleb here. So I'm glad for him to be here. Uh, Desert Springs sent us out in 2016. Uh, to plant Christ Church four years and a month ago, which now, if I've now done the math right, uh, that means that I have now been on staff longer at Christ Church than I was, I was ever on staff at Desert Springs, and that is just bananas. Uh, but early in the spring, I was beginning to plan uh, my preaching schedule for the rest of the year, and I was planning on swinging around to a minor prophet. I'd never taught through a minor prophet before, and Habakkuk sounded good for the summer. Uh, it's a short three-chapter bombshell about suffering and about judgment, about confusion, about God's sovereignty. And then, late February, this slow-moving wave of COVID seemed to be coming towards us, and then it moved into a fast-moving tsunami. And in God's sovereignty, it became even more clear that this was a needed word from God for our church in these unprecedented times. Uh, so when Drew asked me, I don't know, seven or eight days ago if I would be willing to, to preach here, I said, as long as I can preach something that I've already preached before, because uh, I'm still preaching in Acts 1 tonight at Christ Church. And so he said, that'd be great. Because here's the deal, though. With this short book of Habakkuk, these are unprecedented times for us in 2020. None of us have ever lived through a time like this. But these are very, this, this year is actually a pretty tame time in the sweeping scope of human history. That isn't to minimize any of the pain, any of the suffering, any of the injustice or wickedness or financial loss or loneliness or death that we have experienced or observed, have come up close to this year. But to have a better understanding of history, both biblically, both in just the world and even in church history, well, every decade is filled with injustice. Every decade is filled with wickedness and injustice and loss. And almost every century is affected by pandemic. And so Habakkuk is an ongoingly needed slap in the face of reality for centering us before the God of time and history. So this morning, I am just going to jump straight into chapter 3 of Habakkuk. So we will have missed a lot of context in chapters 1 and 2. So let me just briefly orient us here. Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. The ten northern tribes of Israel have nearly all been essentially wiped from history from the Assyrian Empire, and Habakkuk is down south in Jerusalem, where the throne of David is still in place. The temple worship of God still exists, but he looks around and he really hates what he sees. The nation is not how God has intended it. There is wickedness, there is injustice, there is no love for God, there is no love for neighbor. And so in chapter 1, he is crying out to God. He's crying out in lament and seemingly ask, asking God to bring new revival in the nation. His first complaint 
seemingly, is just, there is just so much evil in the land, O God. What are you going to do about it? In which God's first response then to his first complaint is, I know there is so much evil in the land, so I am going to deal with this evil with a more evil Babylon. I am bringing judgment from Babylon. Followed by Habakkuk's second complaint, which is basically just, wait, what? That is not at all what I was asking for, what I was hoping for. And by the beginning of chapter 2, though, Habakkuk is bewildered. He is exasperated at what God intends to do. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk gets away from the problems of the ground, gets up high, and he just parks himself in this high place and expectantly watching in faith for God's action, even though he does not understand it. He doesn't know how or what God is going to do, and any and every option seems like a terrible one. Feels impossible. But he is going to park himself in defiant faith. Have you seen that gif of this guy? He's like a biker guy, and he shows up to like a kid's soccer game, and he's got a camping chair in one hand, and he like pops it open with one chair, and then just like plops himself down at this kid's soccer game. Uh, that gif, that biker guy, is exactly how I picture Habakkuk. Parking himself down in defiant faith. Not defiance against God, but against everything else in the world that would suggest the goodness and sovereignty of God. Against it all, the context of the surrounding world of impending loss, of a world of suffering, he parks himself down. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, he might pray in the words of David. But God is not indifferent towards sin or wickedness of any kind. What follows in the rest of chapter 2 is all kinds of woes or realities of coming judgment on Babylon as well. After God will use Babylon as an instrument of judgment for Judah, he will then judge Babylon as well, which then gets us to our text this morning in chapter 3. Habakkuk is going to sit here in his camping chair, overlooking the, the fires of Mordor that are brewing over the horizon, and he is going to preach a sermon to himself. The sermon looks first back in history upon the, the past acts of God in history in actual time and space, and then because of this past action, Habakkuk is then reassured in his present and in his future, which is something that we all need today as well. Because God has powerfully and faithfully acted in the past, we can now entrust him with our present and with our future. So I'll read the chapter, and then we're going to divide this sermon into two halves, the way that Habakkuk's prayer is seemingly also divided, looking back in history and then looking forward to the future. So we'll title these two sections this morning, Choose to Remember and Choose to Rejoice. Let me read Habakkuk 3. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. 
His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of, your, of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So choose to remember. In light of everything that we've considered in the first two chapters, Habakkuk slows down and once again turns his attention to God. Despite the wickedness of his own people, despite God's confusing answer that he'd use the more wicked Babylon to judge their wickedness, finally Habakkuk has finally arrived at a fairly decent theological headspace. And it'll get even better as we progress through chapter 3. He's in a good place, a place that's been coming because he's finally been humbled. The first two chapters were filled with questions, were filled with objections, and we shouldn't necessarily and quickly denounce these questions or objections as faithless or as wrong. It was through theologically working through these questions and objections that God has brought him to where he now finally is. One commentator says this, no content, neither contemplation nor worship of the living God can take place while mortals are still proudly projecting themselves as equals or advisors to the Lord of the universe. This was true for Habakkuk and true for us as well. Learning to lament is difficult, and it's often like walking down an icy sidewalk. You have to walk slowly, patiently, deliberately, looking for a solid place here and a solid place there amongst all of the danger. And so, 
we can often bring our difficulties, our struggles, our questions, our complaints to God in an ungodly or a proud way. Questions like, what are you doing? This is wrong. I would, if I were in charge, operate and do things in a totally different way. And yet when we come to God in that way, we are still projecting ourselves as equals or advisors to God Almighty. Or, in humility, to share Tim Keller's line that I've shared with Christ Church about a million times, we can be sure that our prayers are answered precisely in the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. And so Habakkuk is finally getting close to that agreement with God of trusting him, but he's not quite there. He has parked the camping chair in defiant faith overlooking the coming storm, and he begins to pray. In verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk tells God that he has heard of God's working in the past, and now he once again wants wants God to act in the same way. He has done incredible things for his people. Now, God, revive that work. Bring that work and bring your people back to life. In your right and in your just wrath, though, please, God, also remember mercy. But then the object and the tense changes. In verse 3, while this is still totally a prayer, it changes from the second person to, to you, O Lord. Now it changes to the third person of him describing God who came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And what follows in verses 3 through 15 is a recounting of the national history of Israel and of God's powerful and faithful care for his people and of the keeping of his promises. Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai, and Taman is the site in the land of Edom, Edom, where Israel sat poised to enter into the promised land. Habakkuk is remembering the places where God had brought his people and where he had revealed himself to them. At Sinai, where the Holy One came from the, for, with the good law for his people, and he had covenanted himself to them in righteousness. Second half of verse 3, his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth, or the land, was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. If you're familiar with the Exodus story, this is all just mighty Exodus language of God revealing his glory, his, his weightiness, his reputation, revealing himself as the gravitational center of his people and of the entire universe. And out of love for his people, out of his covenant faithfulness to his promises that he made to Abraham, he brought the people out of Egypt, Egypt with plagues, with pestilence, and even more, not just behind him in their past, but he will march before them as well. In verse 6, he measured the earth and shook the nations, the eternal mountains, the high places of worship to idols and of the wicked gods, the Baals and the Ashtoreths of the Canaanite people. They were scattered and they were made low. God is marching with his people, marching them northward from Egypt, leading and protecting his bride from attack and from death. And even those whom he bypassed on the way, Cush and Midian in verse 7, even they now tremble as the creator God of the universe, the warrior king, 
now marches with his bride in covenant love and with an invitation to the nations that they might join them. Instead, though, sitting in their idolatry, the nations hate Israel, and they hate her, they hate her groom, they hate her king. And what follows from verse 8 through 15 is a poetic mix and mingle of action and of phrases and of description from mostly the Psalms. Habakkuk isn't necessarily retelling these events like they might be told in 2 Samuel or 1 Kings or something. This isn't necessarily a historical retelling just for history's sake even, but a poetic and theological reflection upon the strength, on the power, on the might, and of the glory of God. And a lot of these descriptions might initially make us a little uncomfortable. They might make us a lot uncomfortable. Like verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. So a couple of things here in how to process through some uncomfortable texts like these. The fury of God. Well, first of all, these Canaanite folks weren't just necessarily like, they weren't agrarian farmers just trying to scratch out a living and then big bad Israel comes out with their swords drawn and just killing everyone. Archaeological finds and written texts show that these were violent cultures with pervasive and wicked sexual worship to idols, even human sacrificial systems to their gods, most often sacrifices of children and even of infants. But secondly, even if this were just a peaceful agrarian society that Israel comes out and God judges through them, even if they were, while the effects of their individual and societal sins might not have been as humanly devastating, all sin is rebellion. All sin is an eternal affront against God who has created us to live for him and love for him. No human is owed even the next breath or the next beat of our heart. And so every day and every second for every human is grace upon grace. All of us, Habakkuk included, are under God's good and right judgment of sin. And the only thing that we deserve, the only thing that we have earned, is death. But thirdly, God was keeping his promise to, in this time, bless those who would bless his people and curse those who would curse them even physically. To know and to love God in these days meant to love and to know his people Israel. To hate and attack the people of God was to hate and attack God himself. And then even fourthly, at this point in God's unfolding plan of history and redemption, he was setting aside a national people. He was setting them apart from the world through which then he would indeed bless the entire world. These people needed to be theologically and morally distinct, and they even needed to be geographically distinct, that they might be theologically and morally distinct. All of this, that there might be still a people someday, a children of the promise through which the Messiah would come, the one who would come and live as the true Israel, the one who would actually live in perfect covenant union with Yahweh. Messiah the literal Hebrew word for anointed, the one who would be set apart to accomplish God's purposes. The word that we, in fact, see in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, for the salvation of your Messiah, 
Habakkuk is likely thinking of David here, the anointed one, the high point of the kingdom of Israel, the high point of the right worship of God. Even some of this crushing head language might be a reference to David and Goliath with certainly some Genesis 3 imagery as well. But as we know from Isaiah, as we know from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so many of Habakkuk's prophetic contemporaries, there is a growing sense and expectation, a growing hope for a newer and greater David, a newer and greater anointed one, a new and great Messiah who would come greater David that is almost indistinguishable from the person of God himself. And so God has always been a good and true and faithful God, working for the salvation of his people and working for the glory of his own name. He is stronger and mightier than any other God, any other king, and any other kingdom. Full stop. And all of this has now put Habakkuk in a place of silence. Through all of this, he now realizes that he has no reason for objection. He has no reason for suggestions or advice for God. And this is what prayer does. Many of us have learned and used the helpful acrostic of ACTS, A-C-T-S, as we pray, that of beginning with adoration, praising God for who he is, and then moving to confession in light of who God is, then spending time confessing who we are not, then moving to thanksgiving, thanking God for what he's done, and then finally and lastly, getting to supplication, that of bringing our requests to God. And supplication is good and right over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. We are told, even commanded by God, to bring our requests to him. God not only wants to hear our requests, but he loves to hear them. He loves to hear and respond to the requests of his people. But practically, how many of us often just kind of skip right over the A and the T? Or if we do spend time in adoration and thanksgiving, it's mostly just kind of because it doesn't really feel right to like lead and start with our requests. Something about it feels kind of icky. You kind of have to, to... spend the requisite time in adoration first. Almost like subconsciously, we kind of feel like we have to butter up God a little bit before we get to the real part of the prayers, our requests. But God is not fooled, and God cannot be buttered. What if the time of adoration, time of thanksgiving, what if the time of thankful remembrance, of worshipful awe, is actually the main event? that of beholding and worshiping God, this is what actually then shapes and informs the requests that we actually then end up bringing to him. What if we were disciplined each morning to first remind ourselves that God is actually there, that he exists, and then we considered not only the ways in which he has been good to us, but the ways in which he is just good. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being drawn into deeper friendship and communion and joy with our triune God for who he is. I love that Michael Reeves titled his amazing little book, Delighting in the Trinity. It's not just worship for the sake of worship and awe, but that worship and awe then draws us into joy, draws us into delight. 
And then maybe the things that you thought that you were going to ask God for when you began praying, you actually then don't even want to pray for anymore. I'm pretty sure this is what David is getting at in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not like, hey, go enjoy God. Be really happy in him and then he will make all of your wildest dreams come true. No. Enjoy God and then all of your wildest dreams will actually become dreams about the kingdom of God. God does not conform himself to your desires, but in knowing and delighting yourself in the faithfulness of God, your desires conform to his. Your desires become God's desires, mostly just through adoration, through thankfulness, a gratefulness of what God has provided that then overshadows what he hasn't. And yet, in all of this kind of growth, even in growing to love what God loves and growing and hating what God hates, life is still just hard. Pain is still felt. Death is still an enemy. Loss is still experienced. The flood waters are seemingly ready to overwhelm, maybe at any moment. The floodwaters being held back by just the flimsiest of dams that might burst at any moment. And often they do burst. So now, Habakkuk's model of a genuine and mature journey of faith is not merely just choosing to remember the past faithful acts of God, but then in defiant faith, choosing to rejoice. Choose to rejoice. You, you might expect Habakkuk, after thinking through, reflecting upon all of the mighty acts of God in the past, you might expect him to like break out into a big dance party, like a blow-the-roof-off worship set, as loud as it can possibly be, of glory and of power and of victory because of, God, because of who God is and what he has done, to then just kind of like psychologically detach yourself from all of the distress out there, all of the worry and the trouble. Because of God, who God is, hey, it's, all that stuff out there is really not that big of a deal. After all, there are always people out there who have it worse than you. And even if today really stinks, well, tomorrow will be better. Just hang in there. God will provide something better than what you were perhaps even hoping for. There's always a silver lining. If he closes a door, he'll always open a window. But Habakkuk is not an American. His song goes on in verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Earlier in the book, all of Habakkuk's problems were theoretical, were theological. Now they are very practical even physical, either from being so up close and personal with the glory of God or finally getting to the point where he realizes the certainty of the coming invasion of Babylon. He is weak, he is sick, he is afflicted. But what's his response? Not, what are you doing? Have you lost control? This does not make any sense. No, even moving through these initial cries of lament in the earlier chapters, Now he has come to a place of a more settled faith and praise. In the second half of verse 16, he says, Yet 
I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He is fully convinced of two realities. One, that judgment and trouble are coming for his people through these invaders, through Babylon. But that greater judgment and greater trouble are coming for Babylon. God is always good and God is always right. If Habakkuk recognizes that this coming judgment on Judah is not merely judgment, though it is, but it is also for reproof, for corrective discipline, then none of this is out of control. The Babylonians, viruses, politicians, slowing paychecks, racism, social unrest, humming with masks on, and anything else that is difficult or frustrating is on a leash. The outcome of all of it is for my good. Not like there's some silver lining out there that's actually better than what we, all the trouble that we're experiencing now. There's a better something out there on the other side of this, but that for those whom God is shaping and forming, confusion and difficulty is often the context in which I am most moldable, often most shapeable, often most usable by God. And so the question for us to always be considering or asking is, what is this story? What is the point of this story that I am living in? Is the point of my existence to maximize my experience of happiness and to minimize my experience of difficulty, of pain, to avoid all difficulty or pain? If that's the point of this story, to maximize happiness and minimize difficulty, then 2020 makes no sense. Like 2020, could you please just leave as quickly as possible so that we could get back to normal? But if the point of this story is not my own personal avoidance of difficulty, but it is rather a road of self-denial, a road of becoming more and more like Jesus and loving others more than myself, of perhaps not getting to gather and sing for a while in exactly the way that we would want, but perhaps growing in humility and in meekness and obedience as unto the Lord, of having my grip loosened on this world and more firmly fixed on he who loved me and gave himself for me, then okay, I would have never prayed for it. But thank God for 2020. Help me to not waste it. Because in my flesh, where 2020 exists for my maximal happiness and my minimal difficulty, I want 2020 to be gone immediately. But if I know through reflection of God's faithfulness in the past, most clearly in the cross of Christ, then I can now trust him with my present and confusing circumstances. I can trust him with my future if my circumstances are confusing and they are in fact not a trustworthy indicator of God's love for me, but the cross is, then if that's where I look and not my social media feed, then I can choose to rejoice. I can choose to have joy and faith in God amongst the difficult and confusing circumstances. But Habakkuk has not just stumbled into this place of settled faith. He hasn't accidentally fallen into a confident trust in God's goodness. God hasn't just zapped him so that he is no longer frustrated or angry or impatient or discontent. He has instead carefully and deliberately 
pursued God with theological reflection. He has reminded himself of God's past faithfulness and God's past work. He has beheld God's glory and he has worshipped him. There is immense trouble out there. And so much of chapters 1 and 2 are about God's sovereign power. But Habakkuk may or may not necessarily end up rejoicing just because God is sovereign. Just because God is all-powerful, but because he believes and trusts that God is also good. If God is sovereign, but he is not good, then he may or may not be trustworthy. And there definitely isn't anything about him that would be worth loving, maybe revering as a powerful king, but not loving as a good father. Habakkuk has gotten to a place of humble and loving trust in God because God is both sovereign and good, mighty and loving, just and compassionate. And so with his body trembling and his lips quivering, Habakkuk now chooses to rejoice. He sings in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The end. That's the end of the book. There is impending judgment coming. In fact, we never hear from Habakkuk again in the Bible. He, for all we know, and it's probably not... Too bold to assume Habakkuk doesn't make it out of Jerusalem. The land is failing because of invasion or drought or disease. There is zero reason in the world and in the circumstances surrounding him that would suggest that God is sovereign, that would suggest that God is trustworthy or good. But Habakkuk does not allow the circumstances of this hour, of this day, of this year, or of his entire lifetime to dictate whether or not he can rejoice in the Lord. The past power and faithfulness of God now presently enables Habakkuk to trust him with his future because God is sovereign and good. Habakkuk is now resigned to the reality that the invasion is coming, maybe even devastating invasion, but God will save and protect a remnant. He will keep his promises to Abraham and to David. Habakkuk may not make it out of this alive But some will, and the anointed will come. Messiah will come. The Christ will appear. And simultaneously, the greatest and humblest appearance of them all, in power and weakness, in glory and humility, in judgment and deliverance, in death and resurrection. The triune God of glory appears not just to Israel, not just to Judah, but to the entire world for you and for me. When our backs were against the wall, even in a place of greater danger than Habakkuk was placed, not from armies, but from sin, the Christ appears and he dies in our place, in your place, to forgive your lack of love, to transform your idolatrous Babylonian heart. 
and to welcome you as a son and daughter to live at peace with God and in his kingdom for eternity if you would just repent and believe. What confidence, what assurance, what, what security, what belonging comes at his salvation. What joy. Habakkuk is a, a book of deep theology. It's a book of judgment. It's a book of salvation. It's a book of joy. And especially since we have just barely skimmed the surface on this, it would do us well to read it a couple thousand more times if the Lord would tarry in the rest of our lives. But let me leave you and wrap this up with this. Six weeks or so ago, when I was preaching through this book, I was really struggling for joy. I think all of us have had varying levels of joy or despondency, of rejoicing or of despair. Just, this is not the way that we were intended to live, this kind of disconnected life. We were meant to live together in each other's homes, singing together and enjoy. And six weeks, eight weeks ago, I was at a place, I don't know if I'd call it depression, but just of sadness. All of the stuff that I was preaching in this book of like, thank God for 2020 and all this mess. I don't know that I actually believed it. I was preaching it and I don't know that I believed it. And so perhaps this is you today. Perhaps you are still in a place like that. I think we were, I think May, June was just a real hard time for all of us. But perhaps you're still there. Of you just wanting things to go back to normal. This is where I was six weeks ago. Of saying these things, but really just wanting 2020 to end. But in back to normal, I would find things to complain about then too. And if you cannot be content in Christ in 2020, then I think you might not be able to be content in Christ in 2021, when Lord willing, things will be back to normal. I've been so encouraged Uh, in those weeks, six or eight weeks ago, and then in the six or eight weeks that have followed by a song by the the gospel singer Jonathan McReynolds. There's a live version of his song that you can find on YouTube called God is Good, and I have worn that thing out. I don't know if YouTube has like tracks or uh, grooves on a a record, but I think I've worn it out uh, on my YouTube channel. It's just five lines this brother repeats over and over and over again in this one song, but I have repeated it over and over in the past few months. Maybe you'd find it and wear it out yourself and be equally as encouraged. Jonathan McReynolds sings, May your struggles keep you near the cross. May your troubles show that you need God. May your battles end the way they should, and may your bad days prove that God is good. And may your whole life prove that God is good. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we confess our faithlessness. We confess that we think too highly of ourselves, that we make all kinds of wild demands, that we bring all kinds of perhaps even subconscious accusations against you. Our, our, Father, our Father, we pray that you would humble us, that you would give us humility that through careful and deliberate reflection, through um, awe-filled worship, 
that you might reveal your glory to us, that we might behold you, be captivated by you, and love you. That as we swim deeply in your love for us, that you might arrest our souls, that you might captivate our hearts, that we might trust you and that we might actually choose to rejoice. Not to complain, not to grumble, but in circumstances that might not suggest there is any joy to be found, we can rest in your love for us in the cross. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would comfort us, that we might behold you. Oh, Spirit, we pray that you might renew our hearts in love. Oh, triune God, we pray that you would do this for our joy, for your glory, and for the good of this church, we pray. Amen. Let us stand and respond and rejoice in the goodness and mercy of our God. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their son. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is many. What patience would wait as we constantly learn. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the finest of sins, they are many, His mercy is more. So praise, praise the
Jesus. If that is your hope, say amen. You can be seated. His mercy is more stronger than darkness. If you're visiting with us, and and now I mean visiting here in this worship center with us, we'd love to meet you. Uh, If you can hang around for a few minutes after the service, you can do that by making your way back to the foyer. The door is behind you. Uh, Stepping outside into the courtyard, there are some shaded areas, and we've got a pastor there that uh, would love to talk with you for a few minutes. For the rest of us, uh, there's something we would like to not just allow, but encourage. In fact, some of you have been doing this for weeks, and it's been great to see and observe this. Uh, But as you exit the building and walk into the parking lot, here's the idea. Slow your pace down. Look around. That'll mean you'll lock eyes with somebody and start talking to somebody. Greet them. Now, they've got a mask on, so maybe it's somebody you don't know, but wouldn't that be a great thing to meet someone uh, for the first time? Let's ask each other how we're doing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And as leaders, we're going to spend the next few weeks thinking about how we can promote more interaction on Sundays, even given masks and distancing. Let me end with a verse from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Amen.